0: Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, we are going to get back together uh, this morning to reading about David's life together from the books of First and Second Samuel. Uh, and so, I'm going to read from Second Samuel one for us, and uh, where, the, where the story picks up this morning, David has just learned that King Saul and his friend Jonathan have died. So, I'm going to read uh, verses eleven and twelve, and then seventeen through twenty-seven. Then David took hold of his clothes and tore them, and so did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan, his son, and for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. And David lamented with this lamentation over Saul and Jonathan, his son. And he said, it should be taught to the people of Judah. Behold, it is written in the book of Jashar, he said. Your glory, O Israel, is slain on your high places, how the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath, publish it not in the streets of Ashkelon, lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised exalt. You mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew or rain upon you, nor fields of offerings, for there the shield of the mighty was defiled, the shield of Saul, not anointed with oil. From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan turned not back, and the sword of Saul returned not empty. Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely, in life and death they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles, they were stronger than lions. You daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you luxuriously in scarlet, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of battle. Jonathan lies slain on your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. How the mighty have fallen and the weapons of war perished. This is God's word and it's given uh, for our good. Let me pray for us. Father, we ask uh, that you would use this word that we've read and heard together, even this, this lament and this scene of, of mourning, that you'd, you'd use it to lead us to your son who is risen, who sits beside you, who's praying for people like us right now. Lead us to see his grace for us more clearly and uh, lead us into wisdom, his wisdom. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I, uh, I've never really been a big fan of being surprised. Uh, and when I say that, I mean uh, the kind of like surprise party kind of surprise or the uh, surprise visit from a person you never thought you'd see today kind of surprise. Uh, maybe that is a character flaw or something worse than that. I don't know. Um, but I guess what it is is that I, I don't uh, relish the disorientation uh, of being on the receiving end of that kind of thing. I just don't love it. You can uh, maybe one day ask Allison what a pleasure that has been to live with all these years. Um, But of course, not all surprises uh, are equal. And sometimes when something turns out differently than you thought it would, the, the dissonance that that creates is good for people like us. And I think that that is at least part of the reason why David's really direct and passionate lament at the news of Saul and Jonathan's death feels so affecting to me. Because it comes as a surprise. In particular, uh, how he talks about Saul. I mean, I, I uh, I don't expect David to run around and clap. I don't expect him to throw a big parade when he hears that Saul has died. Uh, I, don't, I don't expect him to throw a big joyful feast or anything like that, but a, lots of the details of the story of their lives together up until this point would suggest that at the very least, when he hears what's happened, he might, uh, you know, express or feel some relief. You know, that, that maybe he would sit down for a minute and just be able to exhale. You know, that he he maybe would say a word or two or a line or two about finally being free of this guy who has made his life difficult for so many years. The guy who's tried to kill him more than one time. The guy who has wanted him dead for most of his adult life. That maybe David would show some relief or some happiness that at long last, maybe finally, he could see his way clear to becoming the king. But church, there isn't a whiff of anything like that. Instead, David falls directly into unashamed and uncalculated grief. And he sings a lament. And in this lament, he actually lifts Saul up in order to honor him forever. And that's a surprise. And I think that it can tell us some things about Uh, David, and about grief, and about lament, and about ourselves, and about God. So here's, here's what's happened. The last time that we talked together about David, he and his men had just returned from the wilderness after recovering their wives and their children from some Amalekite raiders. It was this incredible, uh, wonderful, joyous reunion. Um, But maybe you remember that their hometown had also been burned to the ground. And so while there is no doubt happiness at this uh, reunion, there's also a lot of rebuilding to do. There's a lot of their own loss that they need to account for. But what David uh, and all of his people don't know is that while they have been putting the pieces of their household back together, Another significant loss has happened. Several days before this, David and his men had been sent away from this huge massing of the Israelite and Philistine armies, and the Israelites had lost that battle. And Saul and three of his sons had died on a mountain called Gilboa. So David lives about 80 miles from where that happened and it's taken three days for a messenger to get to David and when that messenger gets there, he embellishes the story of Saul's death. He embellishes it for his own gain. He had even scavenged the crown and the amulet from Saul's body and he fully expected this guy that when he gave it to David and told him the story that David would be pleased as he handed them over, kind of like the king is dead, long live the king, David. But instead of claiming kingship and instead of taking any pleasure, instead of just showing a moment of relief, David takes his clothes and he tears them. And he and his men mourn and weep and fast until the sun goes down that night. They weep for Saul. They weep for Jonathan. They weep for all of the people of God. They weep for the whole house of Israel that has fallen by the sword. David and 600 of his men weeping and crying out with their faces in the dust, surrounded by the rubble of their burned out city all day long. You know, uh, when I hear bad news, my first reaction is uh, to become busy and to try to project calmness and, poise. and I do that, I think, uh, in part because I'd like to try to be helpful. And I think that's good as far as it goes, but the truth is there's another motive lurking around behind my busyness, and it's one that I never ever even need to think about consciously because it's been conditioned into me. The truth is that it is far, far easier for me to be busy than it is to sit and to let the loss settle around me and to reckon with the the pain or the sadness or the emptiness. Instinctively, I would rather do anything than that. And I know that I'm not alone in thinking and doing those things. I know that I'm not alone in how I respond to loss and grief and pain. But church, here's what I want us to hear. I I want us to know that there is a much greater, deeper, and more life-giving wisdom than that. Lament and mourning. Lament and mourning, like the way that David and his people are doing it, they nurture our humanity. Lament and mourning grow us more fully into who we were created to be. By sadness of faith, the heart is made glad. That's what the ancient preacher said in Ecclesiastes 7. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning. Of course, you know, there were definitely things that needed to be done. There was stuff that they could have been busy about. You know, David and his people, they have to rebuild this whole town. There is this rudderless and defeated nation that needs a leader. But David refuses to diminish himself into busyness. And he refuses to diminish himself into some kind of projection of poise and calm. In fact, the depth of his feeling here actually makes him ironically large. It makes him larger than life. It makes us admire him. He lets the loss settle around him immediately. And he reckons with the reality of life and of death. And church, I think that people like us have a great deal to learn from that. I know I do. I think it's wisdom to learn from that. So we don't know uh, exactly how much time passes, but eventually, David's mourning uh, turns into a lament. Your glory, O Israel, is slain on the high places. How the mighty have fallen. That's the first line of the lament. And it is a great window into how mourning differs from lament. Or maybe the better way to say it is how mourning wisely turns to lament. Mourning is inarticulate sadness. It is acute pain. Lament is articulate sadness and pain. They're both important for us. And no doubt that's uh, why about 70% of the book of Psalms is lament. Lament, uh, lament does not only suffer pain and loss like mourning does. Lament can also begin to celebrate and savor and herald what has been lost, or who has been lost. And that's incredibly important. The word uh, that David uses for glory, when he says the glory of Israel is slain on the high places, it's not the usual word for glory in the Old Testament, it's actually the word gazelle, which in Hebrew poetry had come to also stand in for things like beauty and gracefulness and honor. And weightiness. I mean David right right from the beginning he wants to lionize Jonathan and he wants to lionize Saul and so he paints pictures of them first before he uses their names. They are the glory of the people. They are the swift gazelles untimely fallen on the high places. I mean church this isn't just Beautiful poetry. It's definitely beautiful poetry. It's also David savoring. It is David savoring the humanity and the good of his best friend. And it is savoring the humanity and good of his best friend's dad, even though their relationship was fraught with trouble and pain and distress. Later on, he calls them beloved, he calls them lovely. He says they were swifter than eagles, they were stronger than lions. And look, church, he definitely, David definitely lets the good of his friend Jonathan cover a multitude of the sins of his father. David is generous, and he is forgiving in this lament. It's an incredible thing. He is generous and forgiving when later on he writes that in life and in death, Saul and Jonathan were not divided. I mean, David's not changing the story. Everybody knows the the story. Everyone knows what happened between David and Saul and Jonathan. But what he's doing is choosing to emphasize the loyalty that Jonathan showed to his father even when his father was going through incredibly hard and difficult and troubling stretches. Jonathan was loyal and David is letting the loyalty of his friend color his lament. That is big hearted. It is generous. It is good. Because we know David could have emphasized a lot of other things. But instead, He says, you daughters of Israel, weep over Saul. He tells the mountains of Gilboa to become infertile because it was the place where Saul's shield had fallen. Walter Brueggemann, uh, he says that where loss is not grieved, there are barriers to newness. Where loss isn't grieved, there are barriers to newness. And I think that's what we're seeing here. David has been and he is grieving a deep loss and no doubt as he did it he accounted for the very real very flesh and blood losses that Saul had dealt to him when he was alive. But here's what happens this grieving makes enough space for David uh, to begin to heal from those losses and even to begin to forgive, it's amazing. And church, I just wanna say that the same thing is true for whatever losses we may be facing or uh, ones that we have faced or ones that we will face, whatever those losses are, whatever that grief is, maybe it is the loss of a loved one or some hurt or injury that we have suffered, some disease, some rupture of an important relationship I mean, church, if, if we uh, can face them, you know, if we, if we don't distract ourselves away from them, if we don't pretend that they're not really there, or that they aren't really that bad, you know, if we, if we can face them, if we, if we cannot run away from them into addiction, then maybe we could, in our true lament and grief, find that we could start to move into healing and maybe even to offer forgiveness to those who have caused us loss. I mean, this is what Jesus taught us to do. This is what Jesus showed us to do. When from the cross, from the cross, he said, Father, forgive them. They don't don't know what they're doing. And so for many of us, the road to being able to forgive, even a little bit like that, that road will go through good, open-hearted lament, because it has to. Because the heart of the wise is in the house of mourning. So the emotional weight of David's lament seems to gather at the end of it. It seems to hit the hardest when he speaks of his friend, Jonathan. No surprise at all. I am distressed for you, Jonathan, my brother. We talked together back in February about their their friendship that they had, the covenant that they had made with each other. We talked about the self-giving humility of Jonathan. God will be between us forever. That's what they said to each other. God will be between us forever. And so now David, in faith, entrusts his friend to the safekeeping of God. And you know, ultimately... (laughs) That's where David's grief and your grief and my grief points us. We have to be fully present in it, in grief and in lament to get to it, but it points us to this. That in our grief, we are acknowledging something that is deeply true about ourselves and deeply true about being a human being. In our grief, we are acknowledging that we long for uninterrupted joy. And that we have been made for uninterrupted joy. And so all of this points us to what we celebrated together last week, what we worshiped around, sang about, prayed about last week. It points us to the resurrection of Jesus because, church, in the resurrection of Jesus, he secured for us the uninterrupted joy that we had been made for in the first place. We get little tastes of it now, but one day we believe that we will sit down to the full feast of joy that we and this whole world have been made for. And people like us cling to that promise, and we cling to it through faith in Him, especially in our grief, especially in our loss, because we are certain we are certain because of the resurrection that that full feast of joy will come. Let me pray for us. Father, you, you know us. You know how we, how we do when we are faced with grief and loss and it seems so big for us and you know how we like to turn away or be busy or get lost in some pleasure or some addiction. So, Father, we ask that you would grow us into people who, who are wise. Wise because we are in faith in Jesus, connected to the one who has all of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge hid in him. Help us to be wise. Help us to admit uh, our, our own grief and our own loss to be able to sit with it and honor and savor those losses uh, to the extent that they were good and great in our lives. And Father, help us to turn in faith to the risen Jesus. Father, do this so, so that we'll be wise, so that we'll grow up in our faith, and do this so that through us you can love this world around us. And we prayed in Christ's name. Amen.